0: G'day, everyone. Welcome, to lubrication experts. Um, I've got Jim here again. Uh, we're going to talk compressor oils this time around, um, So, uh, which is which is going to be really, really good. Uh, compressor oils are obviously a very, very wide uh, application set because we can compress just about anything. Um, so, we're not going to be able to talk, you know, very, very specifically about whatever your application is. You know, uh, we'll have we'll have people out there who are listening who specifically want to hear about compression of some exotic gas that they have in their in their process but chances are that we we're not going to talk about that in detail sort of talk um generically about compressors Um, but just to get started um, if i were to look at let's say for example a reciprocating compressor very very common in the industry particularly when we need to do a uh, you know high pressure compression um just from the outside it looks an awful lot like an engine. Um, yeah. Yeah. At a very, very, very simplistic way, you know, it's, it has a, a crankcase and it's got a piston, it moves up and down, right? Um, but when you yeah. look at a, an engine oil versus a compressor oil, they look like entirely different species, right? So engine oils tend to be what you would call like among the lubricants, seem to be like quite highly additized. Um, you've got to get additive chemistries, even just like on on a volume basis, additives make up quite a a decent proportion of an engine oil versus you go over to compressor oil, which seem to be, let's say, in the ballpark of basically 99% base oil um, with a small amount of additization. Uh, If I could speak very generically about engine oils and, and compressor oils. So if an engine looks like a compressor, but an engine oil looks like nothing like a compressor oil. Um, that might be a good starting point to describe the differences and, and what makes a sure. compressor oil a compressor oil.
1: Yeah. So uh, compressors are a perfect um, a perfect springboard to uh, think about the discussion about how the mechanical device drives the chemistry, right? So when you, you're dealing with... Um, engine oils, you know, you're, you're dealing with lubricating uh, a crankshaft with hydrodynamic bearings, you know, you've got the uh, connecting rods that are going around like a bicycle pump, um, you know, crank, uh, you've got the lubrication and sealing that the rings around the, um, the piston have to do, um, as well as, you know, a whole loop, a whole rafter of other Uh, coordination events, you know, the movement of the valves, the intake valves and the exhaust valves and back and forth. But in an engine, you've got to deal with not just lubricating a hydrodynamic machine that's got to spin ad infinitum, but you're dealing with combustion gases, the the bugaboo about uh, even an extremely efficient engine today. The most efficient engine, the combustion process is maybe 98% efficient in terms of converting the uh, liquid hydrocarbon into carbon dioxide during an explosive event initiated by the spark plug, right? So you deal with a, a huge expansion of gas and and uh, energy, and that's how you pro- propel the piston up and down to extract work on the flywheel to make uh, whatever you you want to propel forward <clears throat> or do work. So that explosion that happens with a typical engine oil introduces millions of different uh species you know, on a microsecond basis. So every time there's a power stroke into the lubricant that's on the cylinder wall and down into the crank gas by gases blowing by the rings. Not much happens that way, but most of it is diffusion into the thin film on the the cylinder walls. So you've got free radicals, you've got acids, you've got sulfur species, you've got a little bit of phosphorus, you've got whatever's in the fuel, whatever's in the ambient air is being partially burned, you know, nitrogen, uh, oxides of nitrogen, right? That, so the air itself is burning, and a little bit of that is getting into the engine oil. You say, well, that only happens, there might only be like four parts per million with every explosion event, but you know, think about the typical four-cylinder car, four-cylinder engine that's in your car, sitting there idling at a thousand RPM. That means every minute there's, in every cylinder, there's 500 of these diffusion events going on at idle. And then you rev it up and you start demanding more and more power for more and more fuel. You can see that engine oils easily get overwhelmed. Uh, and that's why that They need to be changed out with relative high frequency. They they get sat the additives get saturated with all these combustion byproducts, right? In a compressor, you don't have that, right? So something else is driving that that piston up and down, right? So you've got the reverse happening instead of the piston driving the flywheel. Something an electric motor, another engine, a hydro wheel, whatever, Um, a little guy turning the crank, right? it could be that simple right so is driving a piston backwards relative to the automotive application right so in the automotive sense the chemistry is is driving the piston drives out the flywheel and in a compressor it's the other way around so some other machine is doing work on that piston so as such number one you don't have the combustion byproducts to worry about in the compressor right that you do in a reciprocating engine and number two you really don't have the the super high temperature events you do have some high temperature events you have to mitigate in the reciprocating compressor uh, on the reed valves it has a a typical two-stroke design Uh, but you don't really have these crazy high thermal events that you have to manage all the time the oil the lubricant itself does a better job at um, mitigating the temperature effects uh, inside the reciprocating machine and the compressor. So the base oil is doing most of the work in that sense relative to an engine oil, which is the other way around. The additives are being held there by the base oil to intercept all this combustion byproduct nonsense that you have to deal with. So, so a lot of it is just looking at the machine and what it's actually doing. So the, the machine work of compressive Compressing gaseous fluids, if you will, is another machine doing work into the compressor, and in an engine oil, the engine is converting chemical energy into mechanical work going backwards, and yep. that, that's really sort of the the essence of the difference uh, and why you don't need these heavy additive loads in a compressor oil relative to an engine oil. The lack yep. of
0: contamination. Yeah, that makes a that makes a lot of sense. Um, so then. And these two questions might kind of go together because uh, obviously we compress many, many different gases. Uh, you know, by volume, it, it probably goes air compression, and then gas, com- like natural gas compression, uh, and then you know, there's the whole host of refrigerants, and then you've got oh, all man. your exotic, you know, process gases. Um, so we we need to you know be able to select. Uh, compressor oils for all these different applications even though the machinery might be the same but the the actual gas that we're compressing might be different. So could we talk a little bit about how does the the gas that you're compressing affect the formulation? because you know if I if I think off the top of my head um, through the product ranges I've seen, you know, I can pretty easily name you know mineral compressor oils, polyalphaolefin compressor oils ester based you know diesters um polyalkylene glycol compressor oils and they're all sort of geared towards a slightly different application right like you might use a pag for uh, for, for gas compression I've seen uh, synthetic paos used for air compressors um, so so how how does the um, the gas that we're compressing affect maybe the uh, the lubricant
1: Oh, tremendously! <laughs> the, you know, the the, the um, if you want to just limit the the overview right now with uh, reciprocating compressors, as opposed to bringing in rotary screw compressors for the moment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because I, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole evolutionary change that I've witnessed during my thirty years of working career. But um, if you you talk about um, uh reciprocating compressors we'll just leave it there for the for the moment uh instead of going to rotary screws so we, with oh something just danced on the machine on the uh screen here you're much larger um, so so if, if you think about uh just compressing air which is what i would say i don't know you're more of a, a field guy than i am um 85 90 percent of all compressors are used to compress air uh, for a variety of applications, I'm I'm just guessing. Um, oh,
0: I don't have a voice for you, Rafe. Sorry, I was going to say that. Um, that's probably in the right ballpark. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so
1: when you're dealing with air compression, by and large, you don't worry about ester versus PAO versus mineral oils, except for you know, an alkylated naphthalene and PAGs, except for Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the durability of the lubricant, right? So this goes back to the general sort of rule of thumb. If the lifespan of a mineral oil is one X, let's say it's a year from a PAO doing the same kind of duty in that same machine, you can get three to four years. And alkylated naphthalene, you can get seven to eight years out of the same single lube charge, right? So that there gives you the, the sort of durability of the different hydrocarbons. Um, esters, you can sort of put esters at about on par with uh, pure PAOs, maybe a little bit less. Right? I would put them, say, 70% less, certainly better than mineral oils. And polyalkylene glycols, that's the other uh wildcard uh, pags are are interesting is that they depends on the application. You can actually get durability that's anywhere from uh, two to three times that of a, um, a synthetic hydrocarbon, which would be sort of 10 times better than a mineral oil, but not as good as alkylated naphthalene. So that's where I would sort of slot pags in there just for air compression. Now, when you get into changing the gas like we'll talk about natural gas or methane right so here there's a there's a big controversy going on about calling it natural gas in the north america right? right it's really mostly it's mostly methane right <clears throat> because of fracking and all this other nonsense that's going on here um so if you think about methane methane will dissolve into a hydrocarbon i've actually uh worked several issues during my career i've, I've watched ISO 460 gear oils being used in a compressor. One percent methane. One percent methane will dissolve in that ISO 460 oil and turn it into an ISO 46. It's astounding. The viscosity drop is amazing, and it'll that that methane will stay dissolved at an equilibrium concentration at relatively high temperatures in that high viscosity lubricant for a protracted period of time depends on how much gas is being blown in the pressure and all those other variables but that's why when you go out on drilling platforms you tend to see uh these big aerial reciprocating compressors for for methane compression they tend to be lubricated with packed polyalkylene glycols because Methane doesn't dissolve in polyethylene glycols. So you can select your, the viscosity you want. The Pag will dissolve. It'll attempt to dissolve in that in that bulk fluid, but it, it'll just stay as an isolated bubble and eventually percolate out of the solution. Whereas if you had a hydrocarbon, the, uh, the methane would eventually diffuse and dissolve into the hydrocarbon. So with, with, um, methane, uh, hydrocarbon processing in a refinery, you probably wanna stay away from hydrocarbons because you you will do a lot of damage. Uh, And I've seen a lot of very happy customers with polyalkylene glycols. They're unhappy about the cost and the difference in maintenance because you can't mix them with anything else. But for viscosity applications, they're incredibly stable. And then all bets are off when you get into other applications. You get into reactive species. Now all of a sudden you can't use esters, you can't use PAGs because the polyalkylene glycol will hydrolyze with a strong base and highly reactive chemicals. And depending on how reactive the gas is, you know if it's chlorine gas, you can't use a mineral because the residual olefin content uh, and the aromatic species will react with it. So you've really got to you really got to have a you know there, there's got to be um, a little bit of chemistry knowledge that has to go with the choice of lubricant based on the process and the machine. So maybe so, just to it, expand it, there so-,
0: uh, so I can kind of, kind of help um, contextualize that, that chemistry discussion. So let's say, for example, let's pick up on, on one of the reactive species, you talked about compression of chlorine gas. And you said that if you have olefins that uh, that can pose a problem, so my understanding of the way that chlorine works, and this is just from, uh, my time as a, as actually as a competitive swimmer, um, swimming in chlorinated pools <laughs> is that the whole point of putting chlorine into the pool system is that, uh, by and large, it's able to, um, break, uh, the second of a double bond. Um, uh, and that, and that's why it's used basically to kill bugs is because it goes after, um, you know the organic compounds um, in you know bacteria and viruses and stuff. Um, now I have no idea because uh, that's research that I probably did in about year seven. Um, but it it seemed to it seemed to pass muster. So is the idea that if you have a mineral oil compressing uh, using a compression application that's compressing a chlorine gas, that any chlorine gas that comes into contact with uh, a mineral base oil, which is going to contain some. Um, unsaturated hydrocarbons, right? So that means there are, there will be some double bonds um, in in the base oil that the chlorine will be reactive enough that it's going to then break those uh, bonds and effectively oxidize uh, the the base oil. Is is that what you were getting at? Uh,
1: yeah. If there's any residual olefins in there, that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, uh, you don't tend you don't have any of that when you're dealing with synthetic paos for example or alkylated naphthalenes eventually the alkylated naphthalene will react with chlorine they'll do the you know aromatic uh, substitution reaction but the olefins any kind of uh, olefin that's there's, there's probably not going to be any olefins because most of these base stocks are hydro treated in the refinery right so there's not going to be that much residual olefin but in service mineral oils do generate do generate olefins as a decomposition product so what tends what tends to happen then if you if you chlorinate a a double bond on a hydrocarbon you're just asking for it to do a coupling reaction and then once you start coupling reactions then molecular weight and the viscosity starts to skyrocket you know that's sort of the normal suspects that that operate in decomposing things with
0: highly reactive gases like chlorine yeah and then the, the other one that I wanted to pick up a little bit on as well was that you talked about the effect of bases on uh, polyalkylene glycols. So w- what's the reaction that's happening there? Uh,
1: so, so there you're dealing with um, the retro polymerization reaction. So if you think about a polyalkylene glycol in the simplest case, it's oxygen, carbon, carbon, oxygen, repeat, oxygen, carbon, carbon, oxygen oxygen carbon carbon oxygen so if you think about how that polymer was built it was built from a series of oxiranes or epoxides so that was two carbons and an oxygen in a three-membered ring and then a base comes along and opens it up and then this oxygen then reacts with another and then it forms a polymer of however many monomers you want to make it you can That's the beauty of polyethylene glycols. you can tune the viscosity based on the reaction resonance. But eventually what happens is that you've got to decide with that pad when the manufacturing process, you generally start it with say butanol, C4, oxygen, uh, oxide, and then you, you have a terminal oxygen that you need to cap in some form. So that's stable. It's fat, dumb, and happy doing what you want it to do. And then all of a sudden some reactive species comes along and rips off that terminus piece that you've capped that last oxygen with. And then the whole process reverses itself and poof, you generate a tremendous amount of very low molecular weight, oxyranes or epoxides. So essentially the polymer falls apart into its sort of natural gaseous, uh, not natural gaseous, but its beginning gaseous form. And that's one of the big downsides of, of PAGs is that with heavy, highly reactive basic species, they do retro uh, synthetically depolymerize. And then that
0: causes all kinds of problems um,
1: with, the, with the residual materials.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, it, it, I mean, in a very basic tone, it kind of like un, almost unzips or <laughs> un, un, unravels. Actually, there's, there, there's, there's a very famous, for 40 years now,
1: uh, Chevron has sold this fuel additive called tequiline. And it takes advantage of that retro, retro polymerization reaction by diffusing into depo- heavily laden carbon deposits inside of an engine. And then at a certain temperature, there's a light off temperature and it depolymerizes and it generates a tremendous amount of ethylene oxide gas. And it it mechanically ablates deposits on heavily abused um, older vehicles, and it's, it's it's rather unique. Their patents are long expired, but uh, Chevron Chemical has you know all the processes, and they know how to they have that you know magic molecular weight, magic tail, the magic terminus. And they know exactly how the techylene actually works. So if you have any you have any motor vehicle that's got a problem use the Chevron Technoline uh, product and you remove all the intake manifold, the combustion chamber, piston crown, cylinder head. You don't have to take the engine apart. You just run a tank full of this stuff in there. And it's it's actually quite amazing how effective it is uh, in terms of cleaning up the inside of your engine. So that that mechanism has been well known and has been exploited by many chemical manufacturers, Chevron in particular. So
0: Yeah. That's really something you have to
1: No, no. What's really interesting is that that, that is the, the, it's the, it's the two edged sword of being a chemist, right? You get to choose, you know, do I use this reaction to my advantage if I'm Chevron or do I have to worry about this if I'm a, you know, a polyalkylene glycol lubricant user, you know?
0: Yeah. And that, this is one of the things that I, I guess I'm trying to promote a little bit with this, uh, with with these interviews is the, you know, most most end users of a lot of these lubricants have a mechanical background, right? We're often mechanical engineers or we're fitters or mechanics or whatever um, without, you know, and I I include myself in that bucket without a, you know, a a very firm understanding of the lubricant chemistry. Um, And unfortunately, lubricants are chemistry. (laughs) It's a sort of an essential component of of understanding how they work. Um, And so, you know, you know, like you said, with compression applications, um, it would be very easy. Let's say, for example, if we're getting caught short on stock, and you you have a you know four sixty weight polyalkylene glycol, and you think oh, I'll just I'll just use that um, because you don't you don't understand necessarily why that's a terrible idea in uh, in in some specific application. So it's it's really it's really nice to uh, kind of dig down into um, a, a little bit of this chemistry as well. Um, and that certainly, sure. um, you know, that, that, that,
1: that's one of the things I applaud your efforts with this because it's, it's, it's really, um, it, it's really irritating to me, you know, uh, as someone who's gone to STLE meetings and a WIA meetings and wind energy, I mean, I would, I would go to a lot of these wind energy association meetings in the U S or even in Europe and, and there'd be a few hundred people in the room and I'd be the only chemist and you know the first day, it's, eh, back and forth. I give my presentation. And they're like, "Oh wow, here's a chemist. Let's get, let's see what this guy thinks about all this other stuff." You know, and I'm like, oh. and it, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it, it's not, um, it, it's not, it's nothing magic. It's nothing mystic. It's just that if you don't understand it, it appears to be magic, right? And it, all it really is is just understanding the the. The, the language of the periodic table. I mean, that's how my education, you know, ever since I was uh, in high school, you know, before I went to my first degree university and decided to be a chemist, I, you know, I I just was fascinated with how the world is put together. And the, the to me, it's just, uh, it, it makes perfect sense how things go together and taken apart and how things interact with each other. But, you know, as a, as someone who has spent a lot of time inside my own head dealing with the, the chemistry piece and interpreting things, it's it's uh, it's gratifying to me when I can get someone to understand the basics of the science and not be incorrect. I, I, my, one of the fears that chemists have is to be misinterpreted as things are being <laughs> simplified, but things are really are quite simple. It's just that it's one or two more steps, not. 50 steps, you know what I mean? You don't have to be a wizard, you know, you you just have to be, you know, uh, insightful enough to be able to uh, come up with the correct sort of grounding in a metaphor or explanation of how things work for for the listener, right? It's all about the listener.
0: You know, I I spent a lot
1: of time helping my, my two sons who are Boy Scouts here, you know, the Boy Scouts of America, and they you know, we have a saying in the adult leaders is that you you really need to be able to explain everything to a sixth grader. So if someone who's 11 or 12 years old can't understand what you do, why you're doing it, you're essentially wasting your time, right? Yeah. You have to really, not that mechanical engineers are sixth graders. I don't want to say <laughs> that. but I mean, it's just, it, it's just that, that that seems to be the point at which uh, everybody sort of starts to bifurcate and move off into their own little branch of, of uh, inquiry and knowledge, you know, and um, I, I don't think the chemistry is all that mystical. It just, it just needs a little bit more of a calm explanation because the downside of choosing something wrong is usually financially and could be, you know, a tremendous safety problem, you know, and that's, yeah. that's the biggest problem with, with chemistry is that you, you can really screw things up in a hurry if you, if you're not just sort of thinking through the problem a little bit. Yeah. So I, I I applaud your efforts to try and demystify <laughs> this. This is really uh, a great thing you're doing. I uh, I really it's it's um, really great. We
0: we briefly touched on uh let's say the nuances of screw compressors versus reciprocating contr- compressors. Now I know that we're opening up a whole can of worms or Pandora's box or whatever, um but maybe if we can talk generally, you know, there are obviously a whole bunch of different uh, compressor types, right? Not, not just, uh, you know, rotary screw compressors, but, you know, centrifugal compressors as well. Um, so how, how does, how do the different compressor types also change uh, the lubricant as well? Oh,
1: that's a great question. Um, for, from my perspective of, uh, during, during my career, I would say somewhere around the late 1990s, right, uh, before Y2K, <clears throat> you could look at the market for reciprocating compressors, at least here in the U.S., and, and that's all my perspective is, right, uh, maybe 80% of most compressors for light industrial or even um, commercial applications were reciprocating compressors, and a minority say, 15% were screw compressors. And in just a very short period of time, with computer-aided machining and all this technology uh, for um, computer-controlled welding and everything else, I saw that reverse so that the reciprocating compressors went from dominating the market to being a, a small minority in the medium to light industrial applications. And the screw compressors essentially take over 75, 80% of the volume demand of machines and therefore lubricants uh, by the time I retired and a few years ago. So it's really been quite amazing to watch that transformation happen. And screw compressors are, you know, that they have a lot less moving parts. There's, there's uh, in theory, there's no contact with the With the rotors against the stators you know if that happens essentially the machine's gone you know you've you've got two sets of carrier bearings on the two scrolls two fluted um castings that interact with each other and you have a spring-loaded uh valve that controls the pressure that goes off into the pressure vessel a very simple device uh, compared to a reciprocating compressor so i could see why people who um you know, let's say contractors, you know, they would rather plunk down the $10,000, $12,000 for a portable screw compressor, you know, instead of, say, seven or $8,000 for reciprocating compressors that has all the maintenance associated with a reciprocating machine, right? You've got you've got less frictional movements to deal with. And, you know, screw compressors, they, they can go, you know, typically 60, 70, 80,000 hours of operations between rebuild cycles, right? Uh, that's screw compressors, uh, reciprocating compressors. You're going to be lucky to get 10,000 hours between rebuild cycles, right? So there's there's a lot of inherent advantages to choosing a screw over a a recip. And I I I perceive the way the industry and you know operational community has has gone that way. Um, and and if you look at the lubricant demands, the the you had touched uh, on one of your previous episodes about how lightly additized reciprocating compressor oils are, and believe it or not, they, they tend to be um, fairly uh, simple additization methods for screw compressor oils, but screw compressors, oddly enough, because the temperatures, operating temperatures of the bulk sump and it, the machine parts tend to be a lot lower. The, the drain intervals for uh, screw compressors are much lower. You don't have these crazy spikes in temperature of say 170, 180 C that you'll see sometimes on the parts of a two-stroke uh, reciprocating compressor. Over on the screw side, on a really bad day, it'll be 130 C, right? So you'll, you'll, you tend to see a lot different, uh, more mild conditions on the screw side as opposed to the re side. Um, the lubricant, uh, can be optimized for very, very long drain intervals. For example, alkylated naphthalene dominant lubes and, uh, screw compressors really shine. You could, the SAC rare, the mobile SAC rare series is a great example. You can get, you know, three, three and a half year drain intervals out of a screw compressor oil over here on the recip
0: side. You have to change it out every you know, 10, 12 months. When you say that you're optimizing, um, you can do a lot more optimization on the screw compressor side. Is that because the lubricating, uh, let's say, uh, regimes that are required are not quite the same? So on the recip side, you know, we talked about it being quite similar to an engine. So you've got, yes. you know, your crankshaft bearings, which are, you know, have to be, there's a certain lubrication requirement for those. The pistons have a slightly different lubrication requirement. So is that, whereas for the screw, screw compressor, it's more or less the bearings, right? Um, yep. Is that the bearings reason and the more optimization? Yes, you're really talking about a bearing oil
1: that has to be adapted for compression, and so that you can drop the viscosity. Roller element bearings, whether they're spherical, you know, ball bearings or uh, cylindrical roller bearings, they love ISO 100, ISO 150 all day long. That's what they want. Doesn't matter what the loads or speeds are; they're pretty much in a fairly narrow band there. Um, most uh, screw compressors I've seen taken apart, they're all tapered uh, cylindrical bearings. Um, so, but the the best lubricant for because in a in a compressor, it's not the lubricant's not just cooling and lubricating bearings; it's acting as the seal around the two rotor pieces and the stator. So that viscosity generally is right around ISO 46, ISO 68. That's sort of the magic viscosity that you want for uh, screw compressors. Uh, and that's, you know, most bearings are, the, the bearings that are in a uh, screw, com- the carrier bearings for a screw compressor are very lightly loaded. They're not, you know, big bearings, uh, heavily loaded bearings you'd see in a wind turbine, for example, although anatomically they look similar. Their their duty cycle is a lot lower. You could get away with an FCG 8, for example, and compressor oil. But the key thing with the compressor oil is forming that film, that tiny little film of lubricant because if you look at the way a screw works, uh, it's a continuous induction of uh, gas bubble or air bubble that comes in the, the front side of it and as the air bubble moves through the flutes of the screw it compresses 10 to 1 12 to one as it's moving through the tops of the the screw flutes to the the uh, high pressure uh, storage vessel on the back side and they're very simple devices but so at the end of the day you you all you really have to worry about in a flooded screw compressor applications, making sure you maintain that film between the clearance between the, the, the rotors and the stators and whether or not the bearings are happy, you know, so you can't go crazy with the viscosity uh, one way or the other. So I, I personally think, it, you know, for unless you have very specialized applications for reciprocating compressors, you're going to see in the next, you know, like high pressure, you know, trained. Um, you know, one cylinder leads into another for compressing things to higher pressure. I, I honestly don't think you're gonna see a lot of reciprocating compressors, you know, re-entering the market. You're gonna see
0: more optimization of screw compressors.
1: That's what I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of leads into the last question I really wanted to ask, um, which was around uh the, the future of compressor oils. Um, I personally, I mean, my career's been reasonably short, but um, I haven't seen that much change in the compressor oil market, let's say. Um, so like you said, you know, in the 1990s, we had a, a big shift um, in the light to medium industrials from reciprocating to screw compressors. Um, that trend seems to be pretty baked in now. Um, and likewise, the lubricants that have been uh, formulated for use in all these compressors don't seem to have changed significantly significantly. Um, over the last few years Um, and not only that but the the selection that we have does seem to last for quite a long time in most applications you can get some pretty long drain intervals and they seem to do the job really well so the question there is like have we reached uh you know peak compressor oil so so to to speak um you know do you see that there are going to be any significant developments or you know what we have you, you know it seems to do the job at the moment so um, do you see that market being relatively stagnant for a while? Uh,
1: yes. I, okay. So I do see the, the market sort of stable and for the foreseeable future, uh, that would be, you know, five, 10, 12 years out. I don't think the, the relative dominance of the three compressor types, three SIPs, screws, and centrifugals, you know, uh, the centrifugals are pretty much, you know they're very specialized. I think um, for their applications, very high volume, medium pressure. Right, screws are more portable uh, and easily uh, brought to bear in terms of consistent. The nice, the, the the nice thing that screw compressors bring, as I understand it, from just my my simple renting of a jackhammer for demolition purposes a couple of times, is that um, reciprocating compressors give you pulsed air and you have to deal with that change in the, the number of cylinders and, and the you know, high pressure exhaust side of things operating your tool. Whereas if you have a, a rotary screw compressor, you have nice smooth air. It's a nice, that the high-pressure reservoir is nice and controlled. You don't have large pulsations and changes in pressures and, and volumes. And that that's really sort of the the elegance of a screw compressor. But I, I don't see a fourth design out there. I mean, where is it? You know, peristaltic, uh, you know, little diaphragm things. I, they're just little tinker toys used in labs here and there. But for big industrial applications, the uh, you know, there's going to continue to be centrifugal applications and they're going to be limited. And by and large, you're just dealing with the the yin and the yang of compressors or excuse me, uh, receipts versus screw compressors. Yeah. So I don't see, I don't see a big explosion. I don't see a machine out there that is going to lend itself to an, uh, a new mechanical revolution in compressed air, you know,
0: yeah yeah and i guess then as lubricants as a following technology means that uh you know if, if there's no significant technology changes on the on the equipment side then we're probably not going to see any on the lubricant side either um yeah sure and then
1: you know at the end of the day when a new machine comes out what's the first lube that people there's two lubes that people reach for right you come up with a new machine first lube is an engine oil let's find a synthetic go to go to the carport store and see if it works and huzzah it doesn't work or they go and they reach for something like mobile SHC 600, right? The, the classic Swiss Army knife. Yeah. You know? So, just like, hey, let's see if the Swiss Army knife works. And, you know, maybe 85% of the time, either of those two lubes work. And then you go down the rabbit hole of needing a specialized lube for a very specific machine. Mm. And I, I've, I've witnessed that several times in my career that you the, the usual suspects, you know, it's kind of like Casablanca, you know and Humphrey Bogart round up their usual suspects So the usual suspects are engine oils and SHC 600. (laughs) And if they don't, those two, those two criminals don't work, then you, then you have to pull out the big guns and start thinking about something specialized. So yeah, I don't, I don't see a big revolution happening, but you know, I'm just a dumb old chemist from Jersey. So I'll I'll put that out there as
0: a proviso. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Hey, well, uh, Jim, you know, really appreciate your insight. Uh, I think people will get a lot out of the, uh, the compression, compression discussion. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time. And we'll, we'll talk again for the,
1: the next round.